Good morning again, and welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. We are starting a new series this week called Storyteller, Stories Behind the Psalms. Today we're actually going to be in Psalm 18. We're doing this series alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. We're going to be in Psalm 18. We're going to see about mercy shown to King David. Mercy shown is the topic, and we'll see it through David's words. If you could stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. The next few weeks, we're going to have three, next three weeks, three different psalms or portions of psalms and three stories that go with these psalms. Today, we'll read three verses from Psalm 18, starting with verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, I ask that you would add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond my words or thoughts or any of our feelings. That you would allow us to stand alongside David as he cries out to you about who you are and what the greater reality about his life is. Help us More than my ability to tell a story, Holy Spirit, help us to get inside this story so that we can truly walk in the same emotion and favor as sons and daughters, just like David did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've read the Psalms before, or even heard about them, you will know that the Psalms are extra. Extra intense, extra emotional, extra real. The Psalms are super intense. And if we don't know the story behind some of these Psalms, we'll be lacking in the ability to just share the intensity in a good way. On the other hand, if we do know the story, if we do understand what led David in this, in this instance to write these things, We have more of a chance of sharing with David so that his blessing becomes my blessing. His vindication becomes my vindication. His favor and zeal become mine. When we know the story behind it, we lack less of the power from the words. Uh, This is similar to people knowing your story and understanding what they see or hear before them on any given day, right? My personality is sometimes a little bit off-putting. I'm a little extra intense. But in addition to that, if people knew the intensity of my story and how from a young age Jesus saved me, I didn't clean myself up. He got into the worst of my mess and depravity and perversion before I stopped manipulating people to get what I want. He changed me and saved me. And if you knew how much I've been forgiven, you could understand why I can't contain this. If you knew my story, 
You'll be blessed more by the things that I say, even if my, my, my things that I say come in a little bit of crazy with it. I'll give you another example. Kevin, can you raise your hand? Say hello to the congregation. Thank you, sir. If you walk in here today, maybe it was your first day, you might notice that this dude is the most up here, man. He is excited. He is playing this guitar with energy and emotion. And you might notice the eccentricness of it and see that dude's really, this is really, this is really feeling it. But if you know his story, you're able to be compelled to join him all the more. We had him share his story earlier this summer. If you knew how God brought him from atheism in his mind to family in Jesus Christ, you'd be able to share that family emotion as if it was yours. And the same goes for the book of Psalms. And that's why we're going through the book of Psalms by reading the Psalms and sharing the story behind it. Now, Psalm 18 in particular, we'll see the story of how God vindicated David from his enemies. In fact, in the, the, right in front of Psalm 18, the introduction to Psalm 18 says this, says just that. To the choir master, I think we need to, to put your new title as choir master, Raquel. <laughs> to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies. Now, we know that Psalm 18 is quoted almost verbatim in 2 Samuel, which reflects the end of David's life and ministry, towards when he was an older man. But it also says here, it says, when God rescued him from his enemies and from the hand of Saul, King Saul. Now, God rescued David from the hand of Saul at the beginning of his life, in 1 Samuel as opposed to 2 Samuel. My conclusion with all this is that this psalm was one of the lifelong anthems of David's life. That he chose to lift up God for his goodness and his mercy, his transformative power, his whole life. And when he quoted at the end of his life, he was reflecting the mercy that he had always received from an early age. So here's how I'm going to work through this. I want to reread our psalm, and then I want to take you back to 1 Samuel, to the start of David's story up until when God delivers him from the hand of King Saul, with the hopes that we can get inside David's story and see some things that we would not otherwise see about this psalm. And I want to leave you at the end of this with one important takeaway for you. So Psalm 18 I'm going to read it again. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes, you bring down. The haughty eyes, you bring down. I think what this is saying is important. It's important to understand what word is used here. When it says, the humble you save, but the haughty eyes you bring down, the word that's translated humble can also mean oppressed or afflicted. 
You see, we know this from David's story that he was both of those things. He was oppressed by his brothers. He was overlooked by his father. He was afflicted. And yet most of us, we we know of David, maybe we don't consider the first part of the story. We know of him as this big, great king, this admirable king. Jews still hold him as the greatest king there was in Jewish history. But how did that work out for him? How did he get so great? Did he aspire to great things? No, I think the, the process of how he got to the man he was really reflects this last verse. For you save the humble, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Jesus said it almost paralleling this idea just like this. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He's declaring the same truth that David is declaring here. David was very humbled. He was chosen by God not because he was great, not because he was necessarily admirable and awesome, but God chose the oppressed and afflicted and chose to bring his grace into a a place that lacked it, that lacked grace. Now, a little more background. When King David grew up, there was a lot of hope and also hope deferred in the whole nation of Israel. They had just come through a really dark season of judges and some weird, bloody, perverse times. But then there's this great hope. It's King Saul was chosen. Now, King Saul would be the definition of what Psalm 18 says is haughty eyes. He was arrogant, but he kind of externally had reasons to be. He was the tallest and most handsome, and he was supposed to save the day. He was the first king of Israel, and you and I probably would have elected him as president if he ran for the Green Party or as an independent. He was that influential, and everyone was super impressed with him, especially himself. But here's the thing. King Saul, with all the hope that was given to him in his rise in power, it was deferred. It was deflated. The hope was lost. Because King Saul really started smelling himself. He really started being extra impressed with how great he was. And it brought distress and destruction upon the people of Israel. The very person selected to be king and to liberate the people of Israel was their worst oppressor. And so when David grew up as a young man, he grew up with this weird deflated hope that their king had stopped obeying God. King Saul had started disobeying God in the most pervasive and common way. It's what I call almost obedience. King Saul started taking God's commandments of things he was supposed to do and seeing them more as suggestions than commandments. It's kind of like when you and I are driving and the sign says 55 miles an hour. With my habits, I tend to see it kind of like as a suggestion rather than a limit, which is the word used on the sign. And it brings danger and destruction. But how much more when God tells you something, this is your limits, this is who you are, and this is not who you are as a person. And we start to take his commands as suggestions it brings destruction on the nation. Now this happened in 1 Samuel 
King Saul, when David was a real young man, King Saul was told to do something specific to one of the oppressors of Israel and and go and lead the army to not, not kind of borrow their strength, but to eliminate the enemy. Verse 20 of 1 Samuel 15, God sends the prophet Samuel to confront Saul for his sin. And Saul responds to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought King Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But uh, the people took the spoil, the sheep and oxen. See, he, he's not just throwing someone under the bus. He's throwing everyone under the bus. And then for good measure, he adds a little bit of kind of like religious addition to his excuse. But it was the people that took all this stuff, the best of the things, uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Listen, Samuel says, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. And the same holds true for today. God is not super impressed with our religious exercises and go to church and and pray in a certain way and say certain things to people. What he cares about is your heart and if you're obeying him in truth with what he says to do and say and think. Verse 23, Samuel says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has also rejected you from being king. A few verses later, verse 28, he even says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I mean, that's real right there. Now, now what does he mean by better than you? Much like in any other place in the Bible, it's best to interpret the Bible by the Bible. Because he explains the next chapter what better means. And he's talking about David. He's not talking about better looking. He's not talking about more influential or more articulate. It becomes very clear what the Lord means when he says better, someone he's chosen. If you go to verse 6 of chapter 16, the very next chapter in 1 Samuel, they come to the prophet Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. Jesse has a whole bunch of sons, and this is what happens. When they came, he looked on Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, man, this has to be the anointed. Right here, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, everyone say, the Lord sees. The Lord sees sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance But the Lord looks on the heart. You need to know that back then, about 3,000 years ago, the Lord saw, saw the heart. He sees today. And he looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Now, what does he look for? He looks for humility. Remember, the Lord saves the humble. He brings down the exalted. He looks on the heart. Verse 11, 
Go down to verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, uh, they're still the youngest, but he's, he's with the sheep. Samuel said, bring him here. Again, I think they thought maybe someday bring him here. We'll see if he can. No, he says, we will not sit until he's here with us. They could have been standing for hours. Verse 12, he sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for it is he. The Lord chose David because he knew something about the inside of his heart. David was rejected and forgotten. He was consigned to be an outcast with the sheep. He was meant to be unseen. You weren't supposed to notice him. He was kind of like a family secret. He might have had a different uh, mother than the rest of the brothers. We don't know that. But he, for whatever reason, was, was an embarrassment to the family. And he was to be kept away. He, he wasn't good for the reputation of the house of Jesse. Now, we know a few things about David. I mean, he was super emotional. I mean, the dude played the harp, and uh, he wrote poetry. And maybe, maybe he, he might have even had a, his own Pinterest account. We don't know. But we know that he was probably just a different kind of man and a different kind of manhood than maybe was acceptable in his house. And he was meant to be cast out to keep the sheep. Now, in the ancient world, in any culture, People that kept the sheep were the lowest of lows. They were typically outcast. We know circumstantially that David was outcast from his family in this moment, and he wasn't seen by them. He was afflicted and oppressed and humbled and humiliated, but you need to know he was seen. The Lord sees, and he saw David, and you need to know that when you feel unseen, it's when God sees you all the more. He sees where you are. And David would soon see that God saw and that God sees and that the Lord saves a humble and oppressed and afflicted people and haughty eyes he brings down. This declaration became an anthem of David's life because in an impossible moment, God showed himself as powerful. And he continued to do so for the rest of his life. And you get to the next chapter, and we know often people who never read the Bible, if I say David and, and people will say Goliath. The next chapter is the same thing. It's about the Lord saving an oppressed and afflicted and hopeless and unseen person. And yet, painfully I'll say that this chapter, this story of David and Goliath, is a story about God saving the oppressed. It is the most tragically misunderstood, probably one of the most tragically misunderstood stories in all of the Bible. You'll hear garbage like, David had faith, 
great faith to slay the giant. And you too, if you have great faith, can slay the giants of your life. And we can start with one great faith offering right now of $100. It's garbage. It is not a story of how great David is. David slayed Goliath, not because he was great, but because precisely he wasn't. He was afflicted and oppressed. And because God is great, he can enter in, will enter in, and always will enter in the most impossible of situations to uphold the oppressed. God saves the humble, but brings low the haughty eyes. The story of David conquering Goliath is really a foreshadowing of Jesus conquering our sin by becoming lowly and oppressed and afflicted, subjecting himself to death, yea, even death on the cross. Jesus slayed our sin by becoming the slain one, the sacrificial lamb that's spoken of in the Old Testament. We were against God. We were his enemies, not simply just fighting against the Philistines, but fighting against the boasts of our own greatness, our own faith. We are Goliath. And David becomes the sacrifice that makes us right with God. Defeats our enemy, which is so often ourselves, our sin, our boasts, and brings low the haughty eyes and saves the oppressed and humbled. David lived out of the greatness of God in the midst of his lowliness, his whole life. And that's what caused him to gain renown and influence. As the years go on, you see the the next several chapters, the influence of David rises, but what rises even more than this is the jealousy of King Saul. Before you know it, verse 15 of chapter 19, Saul is coming after David to kill him. Now, David at this point was the most faithful of servants of Saul. David fought most of Saul's battles, risked his life for the king he loved. And this is what verse 15 of chapter 19 of 1 Samuel says, Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. See, he wanted to kill David, but he wanted to do it in the, the, the sleeping quarters. He wanted to do it in secret, to secretly kill this one who had so much public renown because of the greatness of God amidst his oppression. And so for years you see David running from King Saul, running for his life. And even while David is running for his life from King Saul, he's also having to dodge all the existential enemies of Israel. It's like he's not safe from his own country, but he's also an enemy of his, his, his own country. Everyone is his enemy. Where does he go for safety? And it was at this point that David began to see the Lord as his protector, his ever-present help in times of trouble. David had nothing but God. And that's where he had everything. And when you are at the place of your deepest affliction, where you only have God, it might be the best place of your life where you will look back and tell your grandchildren of the riches you encountered in that place. This is what David 
got the riches that we get to share in Psalm 18 from. He was alone and oppressed. Wherever you are today, God can do for you in this place where you are what you couldn't do on your own. David will go on to say in this same Psalm, Psalm 18, that the Lord's word proves true, meaning in the face of the most vicious opposition, the word of the Lord is proven true. Now, I've seen this happen in my life in the times where I was so afraid to to bring honest scrutiny to the Bible because like, what if this thing that I feel that Jesus saved me from isn't real? Well, the Lord and his word proves true. In the deepest of darkness, it vindicates itself. God, he says, you are my shield. Your word proves true. You are my shield and him in whom I take refuge. You see, David knew that he didn't have to protect himself ultimately from his enemies because God was his protector. And if you have a protector in heaven, you don't need to be your own protector. And if you seek to be your own protector, and maybe it, it, it affects the way you live and your own kind of churchy disposition. Maybe it makes you kind of not trust religious people because they hurt you, and maybe we do. And maybe it causes you to kind of stay away from growth group type things where stuff gets real and not fit it into your schedule. I'm here to warn you that if, if you're your own protector, you very well be, could be protecting yourself from God himself, protecting yourself from his healing, from his shielding, from him being your refuge, and he is a way better refuge than you and me. See, David knew that in his place of oppression, his affliction, that God saves the afflicted. Now, by chapter 22, he is hiding in a cave. He found this really great place to hide out, and it says that hundreds of other afflicted and oppressed people start gathering with him in this place. I mean, these were the dejected people, the, the rejects of Israel. They, they were afflicted and oppressed, and they joined David in the cave of Adullam. And they weren't content to just kind of sit in this cave, because the next chapter, chapter 23, the Philistines attack a city that's not far from that cave. Now, when the enemies of Israel attack an Israelite city, Kela. Why didn't Israel, the army of Israel, go and defend their own city? King Saul's men were too busy pursuing David to defend their own city. Now, this is a whole other sermon. So often, we will be so obsessed with fighting battles against who God has called us to be our allies that we won't see that our real enemy is right here before us. I mean, this, this plays out in my life way too much. I've been married for 12 years, and I'll just briefly confess, I've spent way too much time and too many words being contrary to my wife rather than complimentary. And the Lord reminds me all the time, uh, she's your helper, your friend, your ally. Like, get over yourself, dude. Saul's too busy fighting his ally, his greatest defender, instead of seeing that the enemy 
is taking this city. So what happens in chapter 23 is that instead of Israel going to defend the city of Cala, you see a ragtag bunch of brawling, afflicted, oppressed people, men, come out of a cave, probably all tatted up, probably all smelling kind of funky, and they come out of this cave and liberate the city of Cala. I would love to tell you that there's a happy ending here. Like, okay, David was oppressed all these years, and he finally vindicates himself, right? People of Israel accept him once again. Saul's like, sorry, dude, my bad. We're all good, right? No, but that's not what happened. At that point, Saul said, okay, now I know where David is. Now I can kill him. And worse yet, the people of Cala sell him out. This dude who just liberated their city, they turn him over to King Saul. Now, the Lord rescues David and warns him in a vision prophetically. And David flees to another part of Israel, the Engedi Desert, and finds another cave to hide out in. And this is the turning point of the story, where Saul runs after David in the Engedi Desert. And this is one of the strangest and most wonderful points of God's humorous provision for his people. 1 Samuel 24, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. So that's like five times the amount of David's men. 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. He was peeing. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do for him as it is seen, seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off. Hold on there for a second. David sees the moment where he can be, his oppressor is right before his hands and he can have victory over him. I don't know why Saul maybe just couldn't hold it. And it was like, a, I don't understand how it was that intense of a moment that he couldn't, he couldn't even know someone sneaking up on him behind, but David had his moment. Then David arose stealthily and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Go down to verse 8. Afterward, as Saul was leaving, David arose and went out of the cave as Saul was leaving and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. In other words, David did what David would do. He was lowly and humble. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, look, David seeks your harm. Today, this day, the Lord gave me into, gave you into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand, the very fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you should know that there is no wrong nor treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt after my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. 
And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not come against you. See, David knows, and he knew at the time, that he didn't have to defend himself because the Lord was his defender. He didn't have to to judge in and of himself because the Lord was judging for him. He didn't have to vindicate himself. In fact, two chapters later, we see a very similar situation play out. And the Lord was faithful to David as David continued to be dependent. It's like an American cuss word. Dependent on the Lord and saw the Lord move strongly on his behalf. In this opportune moment, David did not treat Saul in reaction to the way Saul was treating him. In fact, he refused to see Saul the way that Saul's behavior dictated. He saw Saul through the lens of God's mercy and appointment on Saul's life. This blows my mind. God, give me eyes to see other people with your eyes. David treated Saul in a way that Saul didn't deserve. And why is that? We need to be careful with this question because if I, if we, if we miss the question of why did David have such a great attitude with Saul, we could totally miss an opportunity to believe the gospel and walk out of here with some sort of other religion. Why did David act this way before Saul? Now, if I were to say, hey, David was a humble, virtuous man, and he, uh, he, you know, he, he was really honorable to Saul. So, so you guys go out of here today and just try to be really honorable and virtuous people. If I did that, I would fail you as a pastor. There'd be, there'd be no business for me to be up here in front of you. The reason why David was able to treat Saul with mercy is that David was and always was an object of God's mercy. From a very young age, David had seen that God was the one who saw him in an afflicted and oppressed place. And David was simply treating Saul out of the overwhelming overflow of God's mercy on his life. He couldn't live in reaction to his enemies and in response to the mercy of God at the same time. He was unable to. The greatness of God was too great in his life. He lived as the man saved from his own affliction, someone to whom God had shown mercy. That was everything about who David was. Nothing more and nothing less. Now before we draw to a close I want to take you back to the first few peculiar words of our psalm. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. What does that mean? Does that mean that God changes? Like, he, you know, he acts a certain way with some people and then other people. He's like, a, puts on a new mask. No, I don't think that means that. I think this means, in my opinion, that we tend to see God as a byproduct of our own condition. So if you've received God's mercy, his undeserved mercy, and he has saved you before you ever tried to clean yourself up at all, and he 
put his mercy on you and by the blood of Jesus, you walk in newness of life. You will forever be an object of God's mercy. Mercy is your new name. Merciful is the only way you can act towards others because it's an overflowing response to something that you've received and transformed you. So much so to where you are increasingly impenetrable to the mercilessness of others. And when you see these, you can only see through the lens of God's mercy. And that's why he shows himself merciful to you. Now, if he seems tortuous to you, is it because he is tortuous? No. I think it has everything to do with your flawed lens, how you view God. You're contrary to his kindness rather than tender to it. Now, when you're purified, you see his purity with new eyes. It's a work that he does inside you. So here's my one takeaway before we close. You'll either live your life from the overflow of the goodness of God, or you'll live your life in reaction to the sinfulness of others. You'll either live your life from the overflow of the goodness of of God. It's the most essential thing about you, your behavior, your emotional disposition. You'll live your life out of the overflow of the goodness of God as merely someone who drinks of the endless well of Jesus. Or you live your life in the bilateral reactions on earth. I'll illustrate this with one thing. I, I keep coming back to the marriage illustration because that's where I see kind of the depth of my own sin. But if you're not married here, you can know that this is true and plays out in your interpersonal, intimate relationships. My wife and I have a, a, a fair amount of sinfulness that God is still sanctifying us and dis, in us and displacing by his goodness. Um, so when I come home on a day where she's acting a little impatient with me, what do I do? Do I live out of overflow or do I react to her? Too often, I act impatient with her. And then I act impatient with my kids. I multiply sin and it's just this big reaction. And I can never say I acted this way because you were impatient with me. I can only say I failed to rightly live out of the overflow that's been plenty abundant to me. And so for you, today, I do not compel you to, hey, go live out of the overflow. I compel you, stop. As Jesus says, die every day, pick up your cross, and follow me. And I want to tell you that the same Jesus who was so infinitely full of mercy could go to the cross as he was being crucified for our sin and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's the same Jesus who is here today and by his spirit giving you the grace to not just as a religious activity in this last little bit kind of do communion stuff. You can very literally by faith empty yourself and receive the overflow of his mercy in and through your life. Would you pray with me?